Good morning, Four Oaks. Pastor Paul, so glad that you are here this morning. You may be wondering what's happening with the light up here. Um, I asked the team to open that up to make sure the Shekinah glory shone right here on the pulpit. And we had it right first service, but it's kind of passed now. No, actually, the, the, the window broke and Kirk Tannis is out of town. That, that's the secret of what's going on there. Hey, before we jump into God's Word this morning, let me extend to you an invitation, um, an in, a strong encouragement, maybe even like a gentle exhortation. We'd love for you to come out to our Four Oaks family meeting tonight here um, at 5 p.m. You know, we don't have a lot of family meetings. We all have those sort of stereotypes of church business meetings and stuffy people and deacons ordering people around and don't spill punch on the Jones Memorial carpet and stuff like that. And so, but that's not our family meetings. Our family meetings are hopefully engaging and maybe just a little bit fun and informative. So we are going to be serving pizza tonight, um, not at the Hungry Howie's Variety, although God bless them. Okay, Dave's Pizza Garage, he's a Four Oaksher, going to be providing the, the food, child care, worship. We're going to hear some updates on the life of the church. We're going to talk about what's coming um, in, the, in the approaching ministry year, vision, priorities we sense God leading us towards. You'll hear about those men we're putting forth as to serve as officers, as elders, and there'll be a little budget convo in there as well, and ending up with some Q&A. But we would love for you to come out. Please join us. We will be judicious in our time and, and not hold you super late. And so 5 o'clock for food, 5.30 for the actual meeting. But this morning, most importantly, Galatians chapter 5, I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles to that book. You'll notice that's, that's not 1 Timothy, right? We're, we're done with that series, but we are going to be spending the next 10 weeks camped out in Galatians 5 asking, what does it mean to live a Spirit-filled life? Now, let me sort of situate this chapter in the larger context of what's happening, I think, both in the evangelical church currently as well as across the world and in our culture and why I think this study, this chapter, is particularly timely for us as the people of God. Kevin DeYoung, who's a pastor in North Carolina, he teaches at a seminary there, Reformed Theological Seminary, makes some inter interesting observation. And here's what he says. He says, what, what something has been exposed in the evangelical church this season, a church that has assumed that we have been united by the gospel, by Jesus, that that's, that's sort of what has unified us, or at least what we thought it was, but now we have found out maybe it's actually not Jesus and the gospel that's unified us after all. Now, what would make him say that? It's interesting how people can look at the same doctrinal statement, look at our statement of faith and, and affirm it and agree with it and be in unity on those things. But when it comes to cultural issues, we can be miles apart, can't we, in terms of our posture and practice. For example, race, politics, gender, sexuality, COVID policy. He notes that we all just seem to be all over the place. We have different instincts and sensibilities. We have divergent views and suspicions. We have various intellectual and cultural inclinations. A lot of times, is this not true, Four Oaks? It seems like we have these irreconcilable views of the world for people who are unified or supposedly unified in the gospel. And the result, and we've seen it, right, is just a fracturing of the church at large. Now, in this book of Galatians, the issues were different, 
but the dynamics were very similar. So you had these churches in modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor, that Paul had planted as a part of his first missionary journey. They were young churches. They were fledgling churches. It was a golden era in the life of the church. They thought they had a unity in the gospel. But when Jewish Christians got together with Gentile Christians, they came together, they found out that they were utterly disunified about how to live the gospel out practically. And so Paul steps in to write this letter, and it's probably the very first of Paul's letters, maybe 10 to 15 years after Jesus has ascended back into heaven. And he wants to spend, he, or he does spend the first four chapters of this book talking to them in great detail about how the gospel is their foundational identity. It is their fundamental piece of unity. It's, it's the thing upon which they, it's the sheet of music that they all are to be singing off of. And then in chapter five, where we're going to be, he pivots and begins to press in and say, how then for those who understand, believe, and trust in Jesus, how then should we live? Specifically, how should we treat one another in the body of Christ, even in the midst of real differences, of real varying perspectives on a whole host of things. He presses in on us, for Oaks, what it means to lead the spirit-driven life. And that's where we're going to be camping out for the next 10 weeks. So today, we're going to kind of introduce this series and kind of give you an overview of what's happening in chapter 5. So if you can, willing, able to stand as we read God's Word this morning, invite you to do so. We're going to be in Galatians 5, reading 13 through the end of the chapter, verse 26. Hear the word of the Lord. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another. Watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit... Let us also keep in step with the Spirit. 
Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Let's pray. Father, if we are brutally honest, each of us comes to this text standing condemned, standing indicted, seeing ourselves in these pages and in these words. But Lord, remind us this morning that that is not the decisive word for your people. The decisive word, Jesus, is that you've laid down your life for us. You've given us new life in you. You've united us to you in your death and through your life. And it's only, only, only by being connected with you that we become the people you've called us to be. And so, Lord, we stand in absolute dependence upon this work of grace. We can't, we can't do it ourselves. We can't make ourselves be something apart from your spirit. And so, spirit, have your way with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please take your seats. Three points. Here we go. First of all, we're going to look at the severe context that prompts Paul to write this, and it is severe, and it is ugly. Secondly, we're going to talk about the spirit-filled conflict God has called each of us to. And finally, the spiritual calculation that we are to do in response to this text. So let's look first at the severe context. I want to say a couple things in a little more detail that I just passed over in the introduction. This was a young church. They were baby Christians. They were part of the product of Paul's very first missionary journey where he planted churches throughout Asia Minor in this area called Galatia, which is now modern-day Turkey. Well, remember, the first church of the New Testament was in Jerusalem. And apparently some representatives from the church, or they may have prob- they probably actually came on their own, they came to check out these young churches in Asia Minor, and they began to teach them that certainly Jesus saves them, absolutely. And certainly the gospel is primary. But if you're going to be a super faithful Christian, a super spiritual Christian, then you need to follow these Old Testament ceremonial laws. You need to restrict what you eat. You need to be circumcised. You need to honor the Sabbath in these ways. And understand, I mean, we don't think these things save you, but... but There's Christians, and then there's super spiritual Christians, right? That was what they were being taught. Well, there was a second, and there was a group that came under the sway of this teaching. Well, there was a second group that were more kind of in the libertine category, and basically their attitude was, let us tell you what you can do with your Old Testament law. That's essentially their attitude. They're like, we're going to do what we're going to do, and nobody's going to tell us what we're going to do. And these two factions were in conflict, and what was instigated was essentially a church civil war. It was an ecclesiastical dust-up. And look at the way Paul, this was no ordinary dust-up, look at the way Paul describes this, okay, this conflict. He talks about this idea that they are biting, devouring, and consuming each other. Now, if that sounds stark, that is animal-like imagery, right? That's where Paul grabs these metaphors from. It literally means in the Greek to eat the pieces and gulp down, okay? That's what it means. 
Now, this reminds me, you know, being a child of the 70s, Sunday night was a sacred space, okay? Saturday night was hee-haw, but Sunday night was the wonderful world of Disney. And so we would watch the wonderful world of Disney, and I don't know what came on prior to the wonderful world of Disney in your house, but in our house in Tennessee, it was, of course, Mutual Omaha's Wild Kingdoms. Anybody remember this? Now, I was fascinated by the way on this show what would happen when a smaller animal would want to take down a bigger prey. And they would basically, all these little small animals would, would kind of harass the larger animal. They weren't as big and strong, but they were super fast. And they would surround that big animal, and they would take turns just taking little nibbles, bites out of their legs and hindquarters and flanks until finally the big prey was just exhausted. He's just like, go ahead and eat me. I'm done, right? And, and, and this is essentially, that's the imagery Paul is using. This is, this is the way people in the churches in Galatia were engaging with one another. Instead of, as Paul makes clear here, fulfilling their ultimate call of loving each other, of serving each other, of, of, of working through even their differences in Christ with each other, they were devouring one another. And Paul has a phrase for this. He says, you are li- when you do this, you are living by the flesh. Now, that word flesh, sarx in the Greek, it's not talking about physical flesh. It's talking about all of those things in you and me that, is, that, are, that are part of our natural selves, that, that we're born with. The, the things that we carry around with us that seek to dethrone God and enthrone ourselves. Richard Longnecker describes it this way. The flesh is that self-regarding element in human nature which has been corrupted at the source with its appetites and propensities. And let me explain how this was manifesting itself in this church and then relate it back to us. See, they they were having a, a battle over what they thought was true, and that is an important battle. That's an important engagement, and truth is fundamental. It is primary. That's why we preach through the Word of God. Understand, there is no unity apart from truth. There can be no authentic relationship apart from the truth. However, here is what the flesh can do in and through us. See, the flesh can lead us to be very zealous about the right things, but zealous in all the wrong ways. Because one of the things that Scripture makes abundantly clear, and these, this is a great word for us as Americans who we say what we want, when we want, how we want, where we want. The Scriptures are very clear that just as important as the truth is, is how you and I express and articulate the truth to one another. In other words, it's not enough just to be true. God has called us toward a disposition of love and care and service, and without both together, it is no good. If you don't believe me, listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. This is Paul speaking. Paul says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. In other words, completely out of sorts. Wrong for the whole occasion. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, 
but have not love, I am nothing. You see, what we have seen this season, have we not, is that there are segments in the evangelical church that almost seem to, 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 to just love controversy, to love to stir it up, to, to love to, to jump into the fray. There's almost a gleam, right, in the eye as they are in mixing it up with the people of God or the culture around them. They're being energized and emboldened by it. They're itching for a fight in the name of the truth. And Paul and the scriptures always remind us, church, that there is a right way and a wrong way to engage in the battle for truth. And Paul reminds us in 2 Timothy what that is. Now listen to this, this is so good. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, that God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. And so Paul looks at the scope of the land and he's like, guys, you've, you've missed the whole point. You are walking by the flesh. And in the process, you're a clanging cymbal, you're a loud drum, you're, you're, you may have all the truth in the world on your side, right? But you're, but you're not being filled and walking with the Spirit. And so what we want to understand in this second point is what does that mean? What does that mean to be walking in the Spirit, to be filled with the Spirit? So let's look at point number two, the Spirit-filled conflict. Now, just here, look, brief excursion here. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 6, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians 5, that if you are a Christian this morning, if you are trusting in Christ, that you are a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. You know, we have a huge cultural discussion right now about this issue of identity. And Paul wants to remind us that if you're a Christian, your fundamental, foundational, most important identity is one as a new creature in Christ. Paul goes on, Colossians tells us that the old man, our original selves, has been crucified with Christ. But here's the problem. Even though our old self has been crucified, we've been given a new identity, part of that old man still resides in us. Part that, that, that vestige, that remnant that Paul calls the flesh. And he tells us in this text that the flesh, this is interesting, keeps us from doing the things we want to do. See, now, and this is, this is so important to understand because a lot of times we think that if we are struggling as a Christian, in other words, there's some besetting sin or there's some relational struggle or our souls are sort of worked up as we're, as we're really trying to grow in our sanctification and move past a particular sin in our lives, a lot of times that disturbs us. It makes us anxious. In fact, we might even begin to doubt our salvation and say, well, if I'm a Christian, how could I continue to struggle with these things? When in reality, the struggle or the conflict between the spirit and the flesh is actually a God-given grace in your life. Look, look back at the text. 
You see, as the Spirit is appropriated in our lives, Paul tells us that a pitched spiritual battle ensues between the Spirit on one side and the flesh on the other. And the word he uses here is they are opposed to one another. Literally, they hate each other. Your flesh hates the Holy Spirit. Your Holy Spirit hates your flesh. And Paul, they're, they're, they're adversaries. And Paul says what it means to walk in the Spirit as just a fundamental posture is that we are giving ourselves fully to that fight. We're not resisting that fight. We, we, we welcome that fight because it is evidence that the Spirit is working in our hearts. And so one thing I want to tell you this morning is if you're struggling over some area of sin, be thankful that you're struggling. Be thankful that there is an internal conflict between you because that is the Holy Spirit living in you, comforting, guiding, correcting, convicting. When we really ought to be concerned spiritually is when we aren't listening to the Spirit, we're doing whatever we want to do, the way we want to do it, and it doesn't bother us at all. And so Paul says, expect this, Christian, expect it. Expect that this is going to be an ongoing battle and it's evidence of God's grace in your life. Now, let's unpack this a little more specifically, put a little flesh on the bone here about walking in the Spirit. First, what is the Spirit? And if this is not clear, let's make it crystal clear right now. Let's read John 16, 13 first. This is Jesus speaking of the Spirit. He says, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. You may not think about it this way, but the Spirit, of course, that, that Jesus is talking about, that Paul is talking about, is nothing less than the Spirit of Jesus Christ himself. See, Jesus said something very strange. Remember this from our series on the Gospel of John. He said, it's better for you, he told the disciples, for me to leave than for me to stay. Because if I stay, I'm just one man in one place at one time as a human. But when I go into heaven, ascend into heaven, I'll send my Holy Spirit. And then my Holy Spirit will live in every one of you. I'll be in multiple places all, all the time and in every way. And so when Jesus ascended, he sent his Spirit to live in believers. So listen, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, you've placed your faith in him, you're trusting in him, it's not because you woke up one morning and said, Shazam, today's the day. Today's the day I'm going to invite the Holy Spirit into my life. That's not the way salvation works. It's the exact opposite. God sent his Spirit to live in your heart, to indwell you, to open your eyes to your need for him, illuminated your heart, regenerated your heart and mind. And now, and this is, this is astounding, Jesus Christ himself lives in you. The spirit is not a presence. It's not a force. It's not an energy field. It's not this sort of neutral matter that can be appropriated for good or evil. If you are a Christian, a person, do you hear this? A person lives inside of you. 
So this is the spirit that Paul is talking about. Now, when he says to walk in the spirit, understand this word for walk, parapodeo, Paul uses it dozens of times in his writing, and the scripture writers use it hundreds of times. It means literally to follow after, to have a relationship with, to walk hand in hand. Now, let me give you a negative example of Paul describing our condition before we walked with Christ, before our hearts had regenerated. Ephesians 2.1. Listen to this. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once what? Walked. Following the course of this world. Apart before Christ, apart from Christ, we are walking in step with the world. We are following the course of this world. But when the Holy Spirit comes and regenerates our hearts, we are now walking in fellowship with God. And so this idea of walking is a meta- metaphor for following God, for having a relationship with him. It says Enoch, back in Genesis, remember this, he walked with God, right? Now, walking, I think, has two key components, Okay, two key components, and we're, we're trying this to drill down to help us understand what does this mean? Because let's be honest, walk in the Spirit, that's, that's Christianese. We've heard it all of our life, and, and maybe we don't have any idea what it means. What does it mean to walk in the Spirit? Two, two things I want to point to, and there's at least two, there's probably more, but there's at least these two. Number one, it means to entrust. Entrust. And when we say entrust, we mean we get, now I'm going to use this term and, and I'll, I'll explain what I mean relative to the second term, but this is more of a passive state. And here's what I mean by that. It means emotionally, mentally, spiritually, in every way, receiving with joy the status you have in Christ. It means giving yourself over to him in your heart, and in your mind. It means, this is so good, stop fighting. Embrace the parameters and boundaries that, have, that Jesus has given you as part of your new identity with him. You want to be able to sit in that. You want to be able to rest in that. You want to be able to entrust yourself to that identity and know that you don't want to be double-minded. You don't want to internally say, you know, Jesus, this part of my life over here, the spirit, have your way. But this area over here or these things over here, off limits, stay away. Don't, no, no go, all right? That's a sign that we aren't entrusting ourselves. Entrusting ourselves means to be at rest with our new identity in Christ. So let me give you, let me give you a metaphor. So When you first become married, this now obviously becomes your most fundamental relational identity, humanly speaking, right? And and there's nothing that you can do as a married person on any particular day to make yourself more or less married. You're legally married. Yet, you'll find that you will grow in your marriage and your intimacy and oneness in your marriage 
as you entrust yourself more and more and more to this new status and identity, mentally, emotionally, psychologically, where you begin to understand that everything else in your life, friends, work, relationships, family, hobbies, as important and as good as those things are, they all take a subordinate role to your new identity as a married person. It is the most important human relationship in this life, and it makes a claim on everything. It makes a claim on every area, which is why I think it's one of the reasons God has given us marriage as a gift in this life. To understand the nature of the intimacy that he has, Jesus has with us. So number one, we entrust. But number two, and this is more of an active posture, because walking in the spirit doesn't mean that um, we do nothing. There's an active posture of engaging. Now, what do we mean by engaging? Think about any human relationship. If it's of significance at all, whether it's marriage, friendship, whatever, there is this pattern of talking, communicating, walking, spending time, listening, speaking. These are all sort of action, active, oriented verbs. And as a believer, what it means, part of what it means to walk in the Spirit is not just entrusting yourself to Jesus, but to engaging him. It means, first of all, listening to Jesus. And how do we listen to Jesus? We listen to Jesus in his word. If you ever get a hankering, East Tennessee word, okay, to, to, to pursue a particular course of action that's in diametrical opposition to what the Word of God says, that's not the Spirit, right? That, that's the flesh. But engaging means listening to what Christ says to you. It means having an active and ongoing relationship with Jesus and everything that you do. It means talking to Him. It means praying to Him with your eyes open. It means being an active fellowship with him. It means that you are, oh, this is what, this is, I think it's to the heart of it. It means that you are helping to cultivate a personal relationship with the person who lives within you. And that's Jesus himself. Now, what does that look like? What does it does? What, what doesn't it look like? Let, let me give you an example of what this does not look like. Okay. So, parents, you may have seen the, the, the movie with, or read the book, Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day, right? Um, I had one of those this week, and I wasn't Alexander. I was the dad. So, so enough, enough about that. Well, this all started one night where I had my whole next day planned out, right? I was going to get in bed early. I was going to get up really early and have my coffee and my time with Jesus I was going to read, I was going to pray, and then I was going to have a nice morning of sermon prep working on this sermon, how to walk in the Spirit. So as things are winding down in the Gilbert household, some five-alarm, urgent family need, one of the kids, this, that, and the other happened, the clock struck midnight, and before you know it, I'm in the bed two hours after I thought I was going to be in bed, right? Which of course meant I was going to oversleep which I did. And 
when I got up, it was one of those days where nothing in the house worked. Do you know what I'm talking about? First of all, the internet was out, and that was enough to ruin the whole day. Okay, so the internet was out. The car wouldn't start. I'm rushing around. I'm being super anxious, super kind of jerky, snapping, being short with everybody. And you know what was upsetting me the most? That I wasn't getting to come in and work on a sermon about walking in the Spirit. Okay? Now, understand something. In that period of time, it's not that I stopped being a Christian, right? I just wasn't walking in the Spirit. I wasn't engaging God. I wasn't stopping and saying, okay, God, clearly you had a different plan for my morning than I had. What are you up to? What do you want me to do? How do I need to redivert? How do do I need to serve the people around me? What are the things that are really pressing? God, how, how can I trust in your sovereignty here that you're actually the one orchestrating these events and not me, and that I want to be able to entrust myself to you in that, right, and engage you as I'm doing so. But see, that wasn't on my radar, right? Because I had to do what I had to do. And I was functioning independently, autonomously, and doing whatever it took to make sure that what I thought needed to happen would happen. And of course, it didn't work, right? It never does. Why did I do that? Because of the flesh. Because of the flesh. Paul says, but there is a better way, Christian. Walk in the Spirit, right? Slow down, talk to God, engage Him, commune with Him, pray with your eyes open, get your head up, spiritually speaking, and understand that I am carrying around in me a person, Jesus, his spirit, who wants to have a relationship with me. He wants to empower, guide, direct, convict, comfort, all the things that the Holy Spirit does for us. And I think that's what Paul is getting at when he charges us to walk in the spirit. Now, last point. How do we know, how do we know for sure, that we're walking in the Spirit. This is, I can't give you the whole answer, but this is part of the answer. It's what Paul speaks to here. Because let's be honest, sometimes it's hard to know. But Paul is kind enough under this last point to give us a means of calculating a spiritual equation. All right, so what Paul does, look back at Galatians 5, he gives us two lists, okay? He gives us, in verse 19, a list of vices, or what we would call works of the flesh. And then in verse 22 and following, he gives us a list of virtues, what we call the fruit of the Spirit. And this is what we're going to be spending the next nine weeks on. And what Paul is calling us to do is to examine our hearts and our lives according to these two lists. Now, let me tell you, I think, the wrong way that we can oftentimes approach something like the fruits of the Spirit. A lot of times we will we'll read this list and hear what God's Word says, that the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and all these things, and we'll say, that's it, okay, I got it. I'm going to be patient. Today I'm going to be kind. Today I'm going to have self-control. 
Today I'm not going to get angry. Today I'm going to do this. Today I'm not going to do that. And we end up doing those things anyway. We, we, we treat these like sort of this moral crusade of moralisms that we want, that we need by our own strength to pull ourselves up spiritually by our bootstraps and to achieve these things. And if we can just achieve them and, and, and work these out a little bit more in our lives, then we'll be a better person and all those sorts of things. And I think it misses the point. See, the idea of the fruit of the Spirit, and this is the paradox of this, right? Is that the fruit of the Spirit is nothing that you can create in your own heart. The fruit of the Spirit is a gift. The fruit of the Spirit is only something the Spirit can do as you are walking in the Spirit. See, the the fruit of the Spirit don't come from your self-effort. The fruit of the Spirit only come as you are walking with Jesus, as you are abiding in Jesus, as you are entrusting yourself to Jesus, as you are engaging in communion with Jesus. Yes, we aspire to these things. Yes, we pray for them. Yes, we seek to practice them. But understand, Christian, They are something only God can produce in your heart. No matter how hard we try, we just can't make ourselves be these things, can we? Because if we could, we would have done it a long time ago. I thought about this sort of as a picture. I I recently, I know this is going to be hard for some of you to believe who, who know me, I recently planted an herb garden in our front yard because that's what people on the Food Network say you have to do to be a good person. So I planted it, right? And you have to know my personality. I can give you a little obsessive. So I'm out there all the time looking at it, right? I'm just like, what, what's happening? What's it, is it growing? Is it good? Now, understand something. There is not a darn thing I can do to the plant itself to make it grow. I, can't, I don't have that power. I can't do it. I can only assess whether it's growing or not. And if they're not growing, I know something is wrong with the conditions, right? Maybe there's too much sun. Maybe there's not enough sun. Maybe there's too much water or not enough water. Maybe I planted it in the wrong place, evidenced by the fact that it's right by the driveway. When our kids get out of their cars, they think that's part of the sidewalk. That could also be part of the problem. The point is, if there's not growth, There's certain things, certain assessment I need to bring to this to make changes so that these fruits can go on to bear fruit the way they were intended to be. But ultimately, I can't make it do that, right? This is the spiritual analogy of our life. If if you look at these lists and you're like, man, not a lot of fruit of the Spirit, not a lot of not a lot of works of the flesh this season, Pastor Paul. I got to be honest with you. The, the solution to this is not to go out and to like I am going to be patient. I am going to be kind. No, no, no. The solution is walk in the Spirit. Engage the Spirit. Entrust yourself to the Spirit. Read the Word of God. Pray, and then God, by His grace, right, causes the growth and produces the fruit. Let's do a little practice test here as we're winding down this morning. 
I want you to think about the last 15 months in your life. We all know what that has been like for us in the world. How would you characterize your predominant internal heart and attitude toward other people? How would you characterize your interactions, your engagements with other people, whether it be in person, online, or wherever? Are they from the flesh or are they from the spirit? There's a very easy way to tell. You go right to this list, and this is what these tools are meant to do, is to put a finger right on your heart, a finger right on my heart, and say, Paul, here's what's been happening in your heart, right? If our lives are characterized by enmity, strife, anger, dissension, divisions, Paul wants to make it crystal clear, those are not works of the Spirit, No matter how zealous we might be, no matter how self-righteous we might be, no matter how much we think we have truth on our side, Paul says, whatever that's generating in your heart, that's not for me. However, as you begin to see in your heart and relationships incrementally over time, love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, then you know that God's Spirit is working And so for the next nine weeks, we want to unpack every single one of these pieces of fruit together, one at a time. But let me tell you what the goal is. The goal is not at the end of this time that all of us are bearing fruit. That's not the ultimate goal. Just for the sake of bearing fruit. Just so that we look better to other people and that we're more kind and people think better of us. That's not the ultimate goal. Or that your family would run better. That's not the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal is that we would walk in the Spirit, that we would abide in Christ, that we would be filled with the one who gives these gifts graciously to his children, that this would be a season for you, a season for me, where you maybe begin to entrust yourself to the person of Christ in ways that you've never done before where you finally give him access to these areas of your life and heart that aren't bearing fruit, and they're not bearing fruit because you're not walking in the Spirit. This might be a time and a season where you are engaging Jesus Christ on a level you have never engaged him before as you know and experience what it means to walk in his power, to walk in his weakness, to walk in humility, to see him fill you up. The ultimate goal Four Oaks over these next nine weeks is just Jesus himself. And I want you to think about this passage as we close that maybe, maybe hear it in a whole new way in light of what we've just learned. Here's what Jesus said on the night he was betrayed. He said, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him He it is that bears much fruit. There it is. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Folks, may God give us the grace to see this season that apart from him, we can do nothing. We are nothing. We can accomplish nothing of spiritual significance and lasting apart from the life-giving work of his spirit. You see, Jesus was all of these things, 
all these fruits of the Spirit, he was every one in, in full and complete. But he willingly laid it all aside and said, I'm going to die for those who don't bear the fruit. I'm going to die for those who will come to me and I will give them life. And I will give them rest for their souls if they simply come and trust in me. Do you know this, Jesus? My prayer is that you, if you don't, you will. And if you do, that you know him in an even deeper way this season. Let's pray. Lord.